we network and we're LinkedIn connected and we're not known and we're not seen. We're followed and we're following on social media, but we're lonely. We transact and still we crave intimacy. So how, and I wrestle with this question all the time, do we find and build and nurture actual relationships? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has shaped them, a book that has inspired them. David Noor's most recent book, Curvebenders, is starting a movement around strategically and authentically building relationships that will help you achieve your career and your goals, and I think also will enrich your life. The journey started for David by stepping foot ashore in America. I am an immigrant, uh, originally from Iran, came to this country with a hundred bucks, a suitcase, didn't know anybody, didn't speak a word of English. He didn't know anyone. You know, we're going to come back to that. But first, how did that even happen? Well, David's parents were part of an exchange program to Kuwait, but a new regime in Iran gained power, canceled that program, demanded they return. The decade-long Iraq-Iran war was just beginning, and North's parents realized the truth of it. My aunt's American. She basically convinced my, my uncle, you send them back and might as well be a death sentence. So my parents, and Michael, now that I'm a parent, I, I can't imagine this, but they gave me up for adoption so my aunt and un uncle could adopt me and I could stay in this country. Noor was a teenager. That's an impressionable time. But he had to figure out how to get along and he had to figure that out quickly. He had to commit to this new life. I was homesick and I missed my family and all that, but there's no going back. So it's the, it's the proverbial burn the bridge. So there's no going back. You got to just forge ahead and you got to keep, keep and one day at a time. You kind of learn and you learn how to get along and play. And I played soccer. I dated a cheerleader. Those two things kind of move you forward in the social chasm of, of, of your friends. And you, you learn. You learn not just by nature, but nurture how to adapt and how to uh, stand up on your own two feet and, and never behave like a victim, never feel like a victim, and always say, how do I learn? How do I grow? How do I improve my condition? But it was more than just understanding, because it takes action to improve your condition. This is when Noor also discovered the secret source to succeeding later in his professional life. The common thread in all that I'd experienced before I went out on my own was really this idea that beyond great products and services, our relationships are our biggest asset. Beyond your educational foundation and professional pedigree, the, the breadth, the depth, the diversity of the relationships you build will be your sustainable differentiation. We'll talk more about sustainable differentiation in, in just a bit. But first, I asked him, why more people don't really understand the power of building relationships? It's a series of events that kind of happen in all of our lives that really, we may get it, we may understand its importance, but we don't yeah. really understand its significance. Right. And by that, I mean, Michael, you see people around you get promoted. Yeah. You see people around you get the job that you really wanted. You see... Some or it happens to you, you get laid off, right? right so in our right. professional environment, these things happen 
And at some point, it dawns on you, it can't be just competency or capability, right? Right. It can't be just, uh, you know, luck. (laughs) At some point, you realize that they had a better relationship than you did. Right. That's what politics is. A lot of times, that's what what I call the, the three ships, mentorship, sponsorship, and leadership. Nice. If you're lucky enough to have those, if you're lucky enough to put yourself in a position to benefit from those, it's it even doesn't become who you know. It becomes who knows you. Right. That taps into you and say, we want you to lead this key initiative. We want you to run this business. We want you to um, kind of run this opportunity for us. And over the years, I saw that. Uh, the other thing is I spent uh, six years, Michael, in a private equity firm where we bought and sold 110 different companies. Right. And I start to notice that the companies that outpaced their competitive peers didn't just have great products or services. Michael, they yep. build phenomenal relationships, both yeah. inside their organizations, but also external to it. And it showed when we went and did our due diligence, you would talk to customers and the customers had less expensive options. They had easier right. options, but they bought from this team because of that relationship. Yeah, and yeah. they stayed with that company because of the relationship. And right. the management team, you know, you've heard the proverbial Gretzky quote on go where the puck's gonna be. Yes. The leadership team anticipated each other's moves right. and completed each other's key initiatives. And you saw that. And, and, some of the very early genesis of my work was really observing companies that, you know, mediocre ideas, amazing yeah. teams took to new heights, and amazing ideas, dysfunctional teams took off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, there's got to be something there that should be more intentional, should be more strategic, and I believe it can also be more quantifiable. I mean, we all kind of know that in theory. <laughs> Everybody goes like, it's like what you know, it's who you know. We've heard that before. What does it take to do more than what most of us do, which is kind of hope that we'll bump into that person again sometime? Right. So number one, hope is not a strategy. We also all know that, right? right? So yeah, yeah. You, you have to start by understanding some guardrails, understanding some limitations. So Michael, sociologists tell us that an average individual can proactively manage about 100 to 150 relationships. Right, Dunbar's number. That's right. That's all you really have the bandwidth for. Right. So one of the first things that I suggest to people is if you believe in this notion that relationships are an investment of time, effort, resources, you simply cannot invest in everybody equally. Right. So if you if you this is the bandwidth I have and I can't invest in everybody equally, how do I then prioritize which relationships I invest in? Right. And I would submit it's based on depth and relevancy. Okay. And it has to have, Covey says the same thing, end in mind. Yeah. So the entire first chapter of my first book, Relationship Economics, was the top 10 reasons most networking doesn't work. And I'll give you and your audience the cliff notes. There's no purpose. <laughs> there's no goal. There's no plan. Apart from that, it's awesome. <laughs> Other than that, it's fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. if you have an outcome in mind, yeah, why are you trying to build relationships? Not, not transactional networking, 
Yeah. But I want to build relationships because I want to reach this destination. And by the way, it's not just the destination, it's also the journey. But yeah, if I yeah. have that outcome in mind, then I can more work my way backwards. And I call this the relationship currency roadmap. Okay. The outcome I'm after, who do I need is pivotal contacts. Who do right. I know is my existing relationship bank? Yeah. And my deposits are investments I'm willing to make and I'm able to make for some of those relationships to create access and opportunities with relationships I need to accelerate my ability to get things done. You do that and you'll not only see the fruits of your labor, yeah. you start to see a return on your impact, return on your influence, return yeah. on your integration of your work and life, return on your image. These are all the, the quantifiable benefits of prioritizing your relationships. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? It, 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 well, it does, but I'll tell you my fear about this, yeah. which is that if I keep, every time somebody comes into my life, I have a, a question at the back of my mind, which is like, and how will you help me? <laughs> Uh, great, it, great it feels like I diminish, I, I diminish I actually, myself in this. I actually don't want you to do that. I actually, right. and, and you, what, what you do, I think might be subconsciously is what I actually coach people to think about and do, which is every time you meet someone, ask, how can I help this person? Right. How can I be an asset? Because one of the things I talk about is a heck of a lot easier for every one of us to ask for something after you've made an investment. Yeah. And if you invest in others, those Michael, there's also some fundamental laws in relationships, right? Number one is gratitude. You, you do yeah. for something for somebody, they should absolutely say thank you. Yeah, Number yeah. two is reciprocity. Maybe not today, yeah. tomorrow, next week, or next month, but they should say, Michael, thank you. You've been kind to me. What can I do to help you? How can yeah, I be an yeah. asset to you? Last but not least, none of us are an island. Right. You ideally see them, observe them paying it forward. You observe them right. giving to others. If they yeah. don't, my yellow flag goes up that that person yeah. just doesn't get it. And, yeah. and you and I, regrettably, unfortunately, have some colleagues in our network that that's not their mode. That's not how they right. think. And right. you, you, everybody sees it. Everybody, I, I jokingly say, everybody has a BS radar. Right. If you have an right. agenda and you approach every relationship with an agenda of what can you do for me, yeah. people are going to see right through that. And they're going to disengage. Conversely, if you're authentic, if you're open, if you're genuine, hey, how can I help you? How can I? And I got to tell you, I, I love your, you know, the digital happy hours, you know, cocktails and questions yeah. you would put together. And every interaction I've had with you, you, you give, you invest. And I'm nice. telling you, you, you people who are recipient of, of that value can't help but think, he's been nothing but kind to me. What can I do to help him? And that's how we all get yeah. ahead is that reciprocity that others are kind enough to demonstrate. You know, I'm, I, I, I've said this, not in every single podcast, but almost every podcast, I come back to a phrase that a woman, Jacqueline Novogratz, taught me recently in her book, A Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Mm. And her phrase is, what if we could give more to the world than we take? And, and what if everybody gave more to the world than we take? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I just love that phrase. I love how scalable it is. And, and how intimate it is. And, and let me just add to that. I, I, I wrote about it you know, in a couple of my books. I actually talk about what I call the Jerry Maguire business model based on right. the you know, hit movie with Tom Cruise. Yeah. 
everybody wants more, right? I want yeah. more contacts, more relationships, more business. I want more. I can't help but wonder, would you get further in your right. personal and professional growth, in your success of your business, if you focused on fewer, right. but more authentic, more real, more impactful, yeah. more, yeah. right? So think of the lifetime value of that relationship not a transactional right right deal or a project or an initiative or whatever right so yeah. i'm actually uh, at the beginning of this pandemic uh one of the the things i did is I actually made a list michael of my top 100 business relationships right and i literally went down the list and i called every one of them for your audience i used this prehistoric device called a telephone that you actually, that. you know, you, you hit these numbers and their voice yeah. comes out on the other side. And, and I, <laughs> and I just asked, right? Crazy. I yeah. asked, um, how you doing? Yeah. And what are you seeing? And what are you yeah. hearing? And what concerns you? And what, what are you most excited about? Where are you investing? Where are you, right? So, and I'm blessed that I work with a lot of different types of companies. And what happens is from those conversations, you gather incredible insights. Yeah. And everybody's looking at this pandemic that none of us know where it's going or what's going to happen to it with a very different lens and perspectives. And right. you you feel richer. You feel um, right. more kind of aware, situationally mm -hmm. aware of what's happening because of those rich conversations. And, yeah. and, and I captured those and I shared those insights with others and I connected right. people. And I'm not yeah. a recruiter. That's not what I do for a living. But I helped someone who was, you know, looking to change careers. I introduced them to somebody. And this client was looking for PPEs. And I referred them to somebody else who had just found an excess supply of them. And you become a purveyor of relationships. Right. And as you can imagine, people remember. Yeah. And, yeah. and 2020, beyond the lives and the livelihoods that this, this pandemic impacted, was a really good year for my business. Nice. Because of those relationship investments. Noah, take us to the book you've chosen to read for us. What, what have you picked? So I got to tell you, it's it's one of my favorites. The title of it is the the Lords of Strategy. Uh, it's a little bit old, older. It's a as Harvard Business Press book, uh, yeah. dated back uh, to 2010. Walter uh, Keichel is the is the author. the su The subtitle is the Secret Intellectual History of the New Corporate World. Yeah. Uh, and it's really about, I'm fascinated by strategy. I'm fascinated about the evolution of strategy. And it's one of those that, that made an indelible imprint on me. It's, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear about it because I, I don't know this book at all. I hadn't come across it until you told me that this is the book you're going to read. Sure. How did it come into your life? Uh, one of my uh, secrets about uh, books I choose to read. So number one, I read about four or five books at a time. Yeah, uh, it might be ADD. I don't know, but I get I get <laughs> bored and I th and I think of them as yeah. you know a lot of different kinds of food, intellectual food, if you will. Um, yeah. My secret is I ask the people I respect, I ask oh, cool. uh, other executives that I trust. Uh, it's the word of mouth. It's what are you reading? And almost like every pre-pandemic, every coffee, every yeah. post-pandemic, every Zoom, every conversation, I'm constantly asking people, "What are you reading? What are you?" And, and our MG100 and Thinkers50 friends have all yes. become a great library, great source of the stuff right. that I read as well. Right. But this came from um, uh, Eric McCarthy is a former cor uh, Coca-Cola corporate executive. Yep. And now he's a VC and private equity and just one of the most 
uh, Michael, intelligent people that I know and thoughtful and, uh, you know, just a, just a consummate reader and just a, a real proponent mm -hmm. of, of the right strategy and the right, right uh, place in the, in the, in the organization. So. All right. David Noor, give, give, give us these two pages from the Lords of Strategy. Okay, so becoming an unstoppable force. It talks about his career was saved by wiser heads, mainly that of John MacArthur, soon to become dean of the school. MacArthur suggested that uh, the faculty table the decision for a year, uh, in the meantime, moving Porter out of business policy and into teaching in one of the non-degree programs where he could try his ideas out on practicing managers. In the program for management development, that was the name of it, Porter was freed from the doctrinal and pedagogical, English is a second language. Pedagogical. Thank you. Uh, rigidities of business policy. Younger than most of his students in the program, he says he learned from listening to them, shifting his focus slightly from industry to individual companies and their plight. Porter used his painful time out of the HBS mainstream. He admits he suffered discouraging moments to complete two large, ultimately triumphant projects. He developed for the MBA curriculum an elective course that he introduced there in 1978 under the title Industry and Competitive Analysis, or ICA. It was an immediate hit oversubscribed, students clamoring to get in, additional faculty brought in to teach under Porter's direction the extra sections that had to be added to meet demand. Two things win your status among your colleagues here, another HBS professor says, creating a huge popular billboard course and which corporate boards you serve on. Porter had done the first. It was really ICA that silenced the doubters among his colleagues, Porter says, it was at the point that the power that be said, this is an unstoppable force, we ought to just embrace it. With the new course he had also, he put in, he put in it a 2002 interview, begun a, peda, pronounce that word again? Ped pedagogical. There you go, battle around the school that has largely been won. Students were provided not just cases to analyze, but also conceptual notes and frameworks to use on them, a handout for almost every class. Porter admits that he even lectured a bit at the end of some sessions, coming out of behind the Socratic mask. His students ate it up, new style intellectualizing breaking through the primordial. Each case is different, missed. Instead of walking away from class discussions wondering, what they were supposed to have learned, they came away with charts, templates, lists that they could apply to the next strategic problem thrown at them. Tons of takeaways, as Porter described them. In the process, he was of course laying down the academic substrate for the principle that well-educated manager, armed with the right analytical techniques, could chart strategy even without a wealth of experience. It allowed people who weren't geniuses and hadn't been doing it all their lives to do it, he says. Another problem with the old way of teaching strategy, Christiansen's and Andrews, was that unless you were lucky, you were reinventing the wheel every time. During his time in the wilderness, Porter had also completed the work for his 1980 book, Competitive Strategy. 
techniques for analyzing industries and competitors, today in its 60th printing. Competitive strategy has become the most attended to treaties ever written on the subject. The only possible rival for the crown would be Porter's next book, Competitive Advantage, published in 1985. He heads the list of authors most frequently cited in the academic literature on strategic management and since Peter Drucker's death in 2005 of popular ratings of the most influential management guru. So that summarizes, and then he goes into a lot of details about yeah. what he did and how he did it. But you see the impetus for me was if you want to be an unstoppable force, you've got to, and what I took away from this, Michael, was what I call the elevator ride. Right. In the books I write, in the advisory work that I do, in, in, in content that I teach, I believe the theoretical construct is important to understand where the idea comes from. Yep. But at the end of the day, it's application, case studies, examples, how others have succeeded doing that, and most crucially, implementation right. of those ideas is what delineates good managers, I believe, from great leaders. Those that think of great ideas and those are able to roll up their sleeves and implement them. And that's that. a small glimpse of what I've tried to do in my own work. No, what's the connection between that insight and your new book, Curve Vendors? Sure. So uh, this is year 2019 going into 20 of my practice. Yeah. And if you think about my wheelhouse, by the way, if I start cooking, if I, if I start talking about and writing about cooking, I would confuse the <laughs> heck out of my audience because most people right. who know me know my favorite thing to make is reservations. Right. So I believe we all have a wheelhouse. Yeah, and we should stick great. to it. Right? Just right. kind of st stay in your wheelhouse. Motorbikes and reservations and restaurants are your specialty. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Michael knows me. So my wheelhouse is this idea of relationships. As you alluded to, it has been around since beginning of mankind, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody understands it's important. And Michael, in, in 20 years, no one ever calls me to say, we have a relationship problem. <laughs> right. What they talk about is the application and implementation of either flawed strategies around mm. their relationships or they're blindsided by a strategic relationship concept that they didn't think of. So what I've tried to do from relationship economics to co-create to now curve benders, what I call my Star Wars trilogy, <laughs> is really show the profound impact of relationships on our lives. Right. Not just on our business, not just on our success, not just, but in curve benders, I talk about 15 forces that we've identified that are going to continue to disrupt our lives. Mm -hmm. And this global pandemic is one example. The only way to remain relevant is this commitment to personal reinvention. Right. In essence, the proverbial S-curve. Your fastest path through that S-curve are few of your most strategic relationships who I call your curve benders. And Michael, beyond helping any of us achieve, accomplish, drive performance, drive execution, drive transactional results, 
curve benders leave an indelible imprint. They profoundly shape the managers, the leaders, the executives that we become. Right. So, million dollar question. Who are they, right? Where yeah, are they? Who are, Where are these, these magical, mystical <laughs> creatures? How do I find them this afternoon? Because I've got a board meeting tomorrow, right? And, and by curve bending, benders, you, you're, the metaphor you're using is you're kind of bending the curve towards the bigger goal, the, the greater impact, the happier life. Unequivocally, yes. So, yeah, so yeah. most people on this linear growth trajectory, curve yeah. benders create the hockey stick. They create yes. that nonlinear growth because they dramatically accelerate our path both, they impact both our direction and ultimate destination. And a very good litmus test for you and your audience would be, think about your career. Think about where you've been and what you've done. Mm -hmm. Most people can name one or two people who've had a profound impact on them. That's when right. I interviewed you for, for my podcast, you, you, yeah. you could rattle off. You could clearly remember sure. individuals who... Didn't, you didn't just sell them something or they didn't just no. do something for you. They shape us. They shape right. who we become in our future. So unequivocally, when I, whenever I describe curve benders, as you and I talked about, everybody wants to know who are they, where are they, how do we meet them? I believe yeah. a more profound question is how do we become curve benders in the lives of others? Such a, that's such a better question. <laughs> How do we become? It's, it's give, it's, uh, how do you give more than you take? Which is like, how do you be a force for good in this world? That's I love exactly that. right. So beyond, think about now. Now let's translate that. I'm a I'm a realist. Let's translate yeah. that into what you and I see in companies, in organizations every day. Right? Yeah. We we onboarding, training, management development, leadership development. We teach them about the products. We teach them about the services. We teach them about the competitors. We teach them about the market. Everything else except how to become an incredible human being, right? how to invest in others, how to take others, those that are in the spring of their careers under your wing and right. teach them empathy. We keep talking about empathy. We keep talking about compassion. Where are we supposed to learn what that really looks like? What is that? How does that show up? So for those that are in the, maybe the summer or the fall of our careers, yeah. what a phenomenal opportunity to have a profound impact in not just the work, but lives of others, just like those that did it for us 20 years yeah. ago, yeah, 30 yeah. years ago. You know, one of the things I was struck by in the passage that you read was the sense of exile that Michael Porter had to go. It's like, we're going to kick you out of the mainstream. We're going to push you into the wilderness. And we're going to see what happened out there. I'm wondering what the role of exile or banishment, or at least just pulling yourself out of the, that mainstream, how that can be a powerful force for change. You, you ready? One word, freedom. Right. Michael, in so many organizations, we abide by both written and unwritten laws, unwritten yeah. rules of decorum. This is how you're supposed to behave. This is how you do what you do. This is a PNL. If yeah. you are a good boy and you meet your PNL this quarter, you'll yeah. get a really nice bonus. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. God bless the people that do that. Yeah. But imagine how many short-term decisions we make to make that quarterly result at the expense of the long-term viability of our teams, of our organization, of our customers, of our partners, of our relationships. So, yeah. so that 
excommunication. Yeah. <laughs> that that you, you are now riding into the desert, the abyss. Yeah, exactly. I see it as freedom. I see it yeah. as a phenomenal opportunity to shed those shackles mm-hmm. and just like Porter did, rethink, reimagine, reinvent. Now, it, it, it all depends on how you choose that opportunity, right? Listen to what he said. Right. He came back with a course that yeah. was so popular. That was There was such a demand. He basically put competitive positioning and competitive strategy and competitive differentiation. And by the way, decades later, we're still talking about Porter's Five Forces. That's right. On the map. That's what he did in his exile. So okay. Let me ask you this, Noah. Yeah. How do the majority of us find freedom when actually we are constrained by expectations and quarterly reports or or whatever. Most of us are not exiled. Most of us are set up in a system that has expectations on how we should behave and what rules we should follow. If this is so important, how do the rest of us find the freedom that we need? Yeah, I I would submit that it, and I wrote about this in Curve Vendors is a blueprint. Michael starts with a, a mindset that actually has got three components. You, you need that growth mindset. So right. I deeply believe in to remain relevant, you have to learn and grow and, and, yeah. and, and develop a passion for learning. And I think that's something you and I and several of our colleagues that we know in our communities have in common, this genuine sure. passion for learning. Number yeah. two is, is a digital mindset. I think increasingly this pandemic has proven that you got to think digital. You got to think about both digitizing, but also digitalizing your right. business model, your go-to-market strategies, and all those things. Number three is entrepreneurial. Regardless of what role you're in, you got to start thinking, behaving more like an entrepreneur. Because if you think of, well, that's somebody else's job, or that's somebody else's budget, or that's somebody else's problem, right. you're never going to really materialize fully. So Porter didn't go to exile and hang out at some beach with a margarita. <laughs> he went and worked his ass off to build yeah. something to bring yeah. back to the school and say, I believe this is a different way to teach. I believe this is a different approach and different content that that the audiences that I see would dramatically benefit from. So I think every one of us have an opportunity. And Michael, I'm going to go one step further. What an awesome responsibility to ourselves, right. to our families, to our colleagues, to our relationships, to continue to reinvent ourselves, to continue to develop what, what I wrote about in the book. I call it your personal market value. Mm-hmm. So you want a better job. You want a better promotion. You want a PL responsibility. You want to lead a bigger organization. You want all these things. What are you willing to do? What, what are you willing to, as you said, I love your question of me. What are you willing to sacrifice right. to go after that's going to set you apart from everybody else who's competent, capable, and a competitive peer? Now, do you think everybody can hold that entrepreneurial mindset? I mean, you, you're so entrepreneurial. I mean, you've kind of got that somehow wired into your DNA. You are, you've been writing books, starting businesses, you know, starting from nothing and, and working your way up the, into the world. Um, 
I have a, I, I'm surprised that I have a degree of entrepreneurialism because it's not really part of my family DNA. My, all of my brothers and my parents work for the government here in Australia. Um, so I'm surprised, they're even more surprised that I'm out running businesses and starting businesses. I'm wondering if it's a lack of wiring plus circumstance or whether actually that entrepreneurial spirit is something that everybody can embrace to an extent. Yeah, classic nature versus nurture, right? So, mm. I, I, Michael, I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I genuinely mm. believe the ability is inside every one of us. Right. It's part of our evolutionary nature, right? We, we've, we've learned how to evolve over centuries, yeah. and you have to be entrepreneurial to think of how do I, how do I evolve now? So you're born. I believe everybody's born with it. It's right. the it's the it's the nature it's the nurture part that that delineates some versus others, right? Mm-hmm. So those that grew up with entrepreneurial parents, much more, right? They realize that it might be feast yeah. or famine. And by the way, Saturday and Sunday are just two other days in the calendar, right? There's no, yeah, yeah. right? And summer vacations, I don't know what those are. We just gotta go when we can, and we have money, and yeah. right. So if you're born in that environment. Obviously, you're going to be stronger and you're much more likely to become an entrepreneur yourself. Yeah. Others who work for entrepreneurial companies see, aspire. Others that work for big companies and see, crap, there's got to be a better way to do that. That spark, that catalyst kind of starts in them and they go on their own. Right. And then regrettably, there's a lot of people who are entrepreneurs. Right? right, they like the idea of they like the they buy in on the fallacy of how many times have you heard? Wow, you work for yourself. You must you must you know be on the beach all the time, and you have all these other people working for you. And I, my yeah. other favorite my other favorite comment you hear from friends: it's amazing what an overnight success you've become. Exactly. Right. <laughs> this is year nineteen of the practice, yeah. and early on, I told my wife, "Honey, uh, you know, be ready. We're going to be poor for a while." She's like, I don't care, yeah. do it. That's what lights you up, go do it. So yeah. I believe like any other muscle, the more you practice it, the more you exercise it, the better you're going to get at it. Like anything else, if you're drawn to it, you'll develop a competency. It also, Michael, I, I genuinely believe it takes a certain level of courage. It takes a level of courage. It takes a yeah. certain level of commitment. And then it takes a construct. It takes a business yeah. model. It takes a a... a oh willingness to go and as our, our mutual friend Gary Ridge says, not fail but have learning moments that you you stumble, you're gonna scrape your knee. Just yeah. like you brought up motorcycles. Falling yeah. off of motorcycles not an if, it's a when. Right. It is going to happen. Yeah. But if you learn if you wear all the gear, you protect yourself. If you learn what you did and how it happened, you learn not to do that again. If you go get the right education and, and ride enough, I, I ride about 25 to 30,000 miles a year. That's a lot of saddle time that it puts is. you in a lot of different conditions and types of roads. And I ride a lot of different kinds of bikes and all of them develop my competency and my capability. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is the exact same way. I, what entrepreneur have you ever exactly. met that has never failed or never exactly. had a business go bust or never... Well, apart, from you, apart from you and me, obviously, we're, we're flawless, but other people. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> hey, Noah, let me ask you this as a, as a final question. It's a big one, but it, I'm curious to know what your answer is. Uh, what has not yet been said that needs to be said in this conversation between you and me? Other people 
tell you this, Michael, you and I are about the same age and you yeah. don't realize it till it actually starts happening to you, which is at some point we're not going to be here. Right. And I, I, I've, I've increasingly thought a lot about that, that fundamental shift from one of success, you know, you and I have just hustle and we chase it and you build and next job and the next opportunity and the next engagement. And you, you, we're in essence climbers, right? right? At some point, you become a maintainer. And then at some point, you start to kind of slow down and decline and, and kind of, you know, all those. So I, I think a lot about that, that leap from a life of success to one of significance. Right, and I would submit to you that the fallacy is at some point, just like yeah. I'll be happy when I will be fulfilled when I will, right. I will create a significance when, and I think that's a fallacy. And I think, yep. particularly around this idea of relationships, I'm reminded of of uh, Jim Collins um, being asked by Peter Drucker, "Do you want to be remembered, or do you want your ideas to be remembered?" Right. And I think in the work that you and I do, we all want our ideas to be remembered. Yeah, exactly. We want to we leave a, a legacy that somebody, whether it's the books or the work that we do with people, we, we, we made a small difference in the lives of those that we were blessed to touch. Yeah. We were blessed to come in contact with. And that's, that's where I'm trying to go. So now more tactically, it's a, it's a three-year journey to digitally transform a lot of what I've done over 20 years manually, paper-based and yeah. training and all that into apps, into tools, into technologies, into things that can scale beyond just me into an organization so it becomes more impactful in their lives around this idea of, of strategic intentional relationships. You probably picked up that Noor has a bit of a hustle hard vibe to him. When he and I talk, he's always got about 15 different projects on the go. Honestly, it's inspiring and a little exhausting as well. And I think he looks at relationships through more of a business lens than I do. And that's really helpful for me to hear. Not necessarily in the what can I get from this, what can I give to this sort of way, but more in a what if I took building relationships seriously? Having friends is one of the prime indicators of a good life, happiness, flourishing. Honestly, from what I've read, it might be a toss-up between whether regular exercise or regular friendship is best for your health. You know, I'm in Australia at the moment. My dad's health has dipped. And it's telling to me to see how friends come out to support me and to support my parents and, and my brothers as well. And, you know, it makes me wonder, it makes me reflect, you know, how much of a good friend have I been to people who might have appreciated me stepping forward and giving a helping hand and just expressing love and commitment to them? I mean, maybe if you're going to take one thing away from this conversation between David and me, it might be this, reach out, build a bridge, give some time. Noor's active on social channels, of course, but I would say the best place to start is just going to his uh, website. It's Noor Group, N-O-U-R-G-R-O-U-P.com, noorgroup.com. And that's the best place to find him and his blog and his podcast, which I've been on, by the way, and other resources as well. 
Thanks, of course, for listening to Two Pages with MBS. Please join our free community. It is this little dose of awesomeness. It's called the Duke Humphreys, named after my favorite university library at Oxford, where the amazing old books were. And in my Duke Humphreys, you'll find uh, unreleased episodes, some video uh, episodes that are unique as well, some transcripts, downloads. It's a pretty rich cornucopia of stuff that you can grab. Membership's totally free. It's just a way for me to know who's listening to this podcast. And you know how this podcast best grows, which you know I, for one, am quite interested in? It's by somebody like you reaching out to somebody who you comes to mind for you. You think, they would like that episode. I should pass that along. Email them, text them, call them up, walk around and visit them and say, Michael's podcast is amazing. Subscribe. You should listen to it. Um, I'd be grateful for that. Also, always grateful for a review and a remark on whatever podcast app you listen to. That's it from me. I'll just sign off by saying you're awesome and you're doing great.